Hey, what's going on, everybody? And welcome to the first and foremost podcast with your host, Jimmy Covington. I am the one and only Quentin Douglas. <laughs> We're back at it again with episode 11. Quentin, how you doing, man? I'm feeling great, Jimmy. Uh, you know, got my grad shoot out the way yesterday. Uh, started me a little part-time job while I'm at home, make a little extra cash. So how about you, bro? Man, I just been chilling. You know, we both just started on the on the, the the foreign exchange market. You know, the currency trading. You know, we just me and you both just got started with it. So you know, I've been you know taking my notes. You know, trying to learn as much as I can before I actually start trading. So that's all I've been uh, been doing, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Trying to get better every day. Get on this money train. <laughs> Absolutely. Man, but we got a we got a good show for y'all today, man. Quinn, let's go ahead and jump in. So Sunday right. concluded. Sunday concluded the ten part series titled "The Last Dance" about Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls during the nineteen ninety seven nineteen ninety eight championship season, their last championship. So Quinn, what are your thoughts on episodes nine and ten? Yeah, bro. Um, I guess not. I guess just like overall, you know, the series was phenomenal to me from start to finish. Uh, you know, uh. The last two episodes, you know, really focused in on uh, their last playoff run uh, against the Utah Jazz in that 97-98 NBA Finals. Uh, and, you know, just showing the ups and downs and how that team, you know, towards the end of that run, you know, you could see them really starting to deteriorate. And uh, they really uh, began to struggle with teams because – I think the documentary said that year they were like, what, uh, ninth in overall offense. And, you know, they had been used to having like the best or like at least a top three offense in the league. Uh, so, you know, with that team, they just struggled to score night in and night out. And you could see that, you know, even when Scottie Pippen got injured, uh, just how much of a load Michael Jordan had to carry with that team. Uh, and just overall, you know, I've seen a bunch of arguments about what other documentary could you watch 10 episodes about. And I mean, I think I agree with some other people that the only other athlete that I'd be that interested in other than Michael Jordan, probably, of course, for me personally, LeBron James, but uh, probably Tiger Woods, you know, just seeing how dominant he was and just how transcendent of an icon he was for the sport of golf. Uh, and, you know, this series, I think what made it so good was this combination of, you know, the team's dominance, Michael Jordan's individual dominance. Then you mixed in the drama. Uh, you had the front office beef. You had the beef between players, you know, the practice fights. Uh, you know, you had the flashy Michael Jordan, you know, the that were gritty on the court. Um, and I think just that combination of things made for a really, really great documentary. Um, and I think it was also reported that Scottie Pippen, you know, didn't like his portrayal in the documentary, which to me, you know, after watching it, I had always, you know, viewed him as Michael Jordan's Robin and probably, you know, they were the best duo of all time. Uh, but I think this documentary really painted him as a guy who was, you know, selfish. Uh, he never had that leader, that leadership characteristic in him that you know Michael Jordan had uh and to a degree you know he had his immaturities about different things 
but like I said, overall, I thought the series was phenomenal, bro. What did you think? Uh, so for oil, it's in my life. That's the best documentary I've seen, uh, by far. And I, I loved every single minute of it. You know, episodes nine to ten touched on a lot. And uh, you know, the flu game uh, turned out not to be the flu game. That was the biggest thing for me. Episode nine. It was actually food poisoning. But still, you know, if Michael Jordan called the flu game, you know, I'm, I'm gonna call it the flu game. I can't argue with the man. I don't think it was uh, either one of those. <laughs> what I do want to touch on though is, is this, this, the death of Steve's current father. And I didn't know I didn't know about this story, and it kind of it touched it touched me. And you know, they asked him did him and Michael Jordan bond over the death of their fathers, and he said it's nothing that they never really talked about. And, and you know, me personally, that's something you know, if my dad passed, that's something I wouldn't want to talk about either. With you know with a teammate or anybody, because, you know, that's a touchy subject, you know, and, you know, the Reggie Miller, the push-off, I'm going to tell you right now, there was a push-off when he hit the three-pointer. <laughs> hey, okay, same, same push-off MJ game g- gave game six of the finals. No, sir. You that win was a some, tap. you lose some. That was Stop. a tap. His, his momentum, <laughs> it was a tap, man. But hey, guess what? The refs, the refs didn't call it, so it don't matter. <laughs> that's true. But, you know, but even with that shot, though, you know, Michael Jordan still struck fear in their heart. It was 0.7 seconds left, and they took a cut to uh, Larry Bird's face, and you could see, you know, just the fear, the paralyzation on his face, you know, knowing that Michael Jordan still had a chance to take this shot. So, you know, it just goes to show you how people were scared of him on the court. And, you know, uh, you know, at the end they talked about Michael Jordan thinking they could have won seven straight. Well, not seven straight, excuse me, uh, seventh championship. You know, they had me thinking – you know, and I kind of believe I believe they could have might possibly could have won, uh, you know, a seventh championship. Of course, the guys are going to be a year older. But if you think about the 1998-1999 season, it was a, it was a lockout shortened season. And that was when Tim Duncan won his first championship. And uh, at that time, Tim Duncan was in his second season, uh, if I'm not mistaken. So I don't think, you know, a second year Tim Duncan could have beat the season, you know, Chicago Bulls. You know, and I guess the season was shortened. So, you know, they would have had less, less game time. And they would have had more time to rest and, you know, and less time be susceptible to injury. But for me, man, I love the series from beginning to end. You know, we obviously we didn't get a chance to watch Michael Jordan because we were too young. Uh, but for me, you know, you, you hear the stories from players and you you see the, the YouTube videos and you hear about them from your parents and stuff like that. But it was just the first time that we were able to see it in depth. And, you know, everything I've been told about Michael Jordan was completely true, and, you know. And uh, the only thing I think I might want to see another ten part series would probably be Kobe Bryant or you know or LeBron James of Because but you know the thing with those is we've seen a lot, uh, we've had a lot of access to those guys, especially LeBron James. So I don't know, you know, how much you could include that you know people haven't already known. Uh, but you know you could do inside the you know inside the season you know the type of locker room type thing. But as far as like his personal life, you know, it's a lot of his personal life is out there. You know he's. Uh, constant presence on social media. You see his kids, you see his wife. So I don't know how much of LeBron James that we would get to see uh, that we haven't already seen, you know, and I don't know how much of Kobe that we'd be able to see that we haven't already seen. So, you know, those two would definitely be what I would want to see next uh, as far as the 10 part documentary. Yeah, bro, for sure. And I think honestly, even personally, I'd much rather see, uh, you know, the tenure with Kobe and Shaq in LA and you know how they rose and fall so quick and fail so quickly. Uh, I think that would make for, you know, pretty entertaining docuseries as well. Uh, but, you know, I agree with pretty much every point you made. 
uh, from, you know, MJ just striking the fear in everyone's hearts. Like you said, we were too young to actually see him play for ourselves. Uh, so this documentary really gave us a good glimpse uh, into, you know, what he was really like uh, and just, you know, really how impactful his greatness was on the game of basketball. You know, I think for the Chicago Bulls and Michael Jordan, I think they sort of changed the culture in a way because, you know, basketball became, you know, a part of entertainment, not just sports. And I think, you know, when Magic and Bird was at their prime, you know, the NBA wasn't as global as it was when Michael Jordan, you know, came and took over. So, like, I think he forever changed the culture, you know, and Kobe Bryant and Shaq, you know, LeBron has only taken the culture forward. So, you know, that's one of those things. And it's one thing I also took away from it. But, you know, we're going to stay with the last answer. We're going to move on to another topic. So it was revealed that Phil Jackson was actually offered the chance to come back for one more season. Quinn, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so that did kind of surprise me too because, you know, before uh, we were just always told that, you know, Krause just didn't want him back. So, you know, basically Phil was just right along with it and, you know, left. Um but it was revealed that it was actually Jerry Reinsdorf, the owner of the Chicago Bulls, who offered him to stay. Uh, but, of course, as we know, it feels still declined that. Um, and I think that takes me back to, you know, Jerry Krause was painted as the villain throughout this entire series. Uh, but I think we have to give credit where credit is due. You know, Krause, whether you want to accept it or not, is arguably the greatest general manager, like Scottie Pippen said, of all time. Uh, you know, he was a former baseball scout turned front office exec, uh, but he was responsible for, you know, really building that championship team around MJ, you know, starting with drafting uh, Horace Grant and Scottie Pippen in the same draft. Uh, he took Tony Kukoc in the second round uh, before anybody in America really, you know, went overseas and scouted players. And then, too, you have to take into account uh, he discovered Phil Jackson when he was still in the Continental Basketball Association. Uh, but I think their relationship really began to crumble when MJ, uh, you know, would constantly publicly criticize the moves that Jerry Krause was making, you know, starting with uh, trading Charles Oakley, who was pretty close to MJ. And then, too, Scottie Pippen, who was also, you know, having contract disputes um, with Jerry Krause throughout his time with the Bulls. I think Krause, you know, really wanted Jackson to come in and, you know, kind of be a mediator in those situations. But Phil Jackson was really, you know, just never the type of guy to want to get in on things like that or like any drama. Uh, so I think after that, you know, him, Krause and Jackson's relationship uh, was just pretty much unsalvageable from that point. Um, and, you know, looking at some other factors, you know, I think they mentioned in the documentary, uh, was it Krause's daughter, stepdaughter, something like that, got married. And, you know, everyone was invited but Phil Jackson. And, you know, he even invited Tim Floyd, who at the time was Iowa State's head coach, basketball head coach, um, and that was while Phil Jackson was still the head coach of the Bulls. Like, he was already grooming another guy to come in and take his place. Because another thing, you know, they mentioned how Krauss believed that players and coaches were interchangeable parts to a championship team. 
Uh, so, you know, he, he really took on that. And I think another thing that probably went into it as well was the fact that, you know, he never got the attention that he felt he deserved. Because, like I said, he thought it was a front office driven uh, organization uh, as opposed to players and coaches. So I think, you know, once all that built up over time, then you had him telling him, you know, you can go 82 and 0 and you're not coming back. So after that, you know, I pretty much think it was a wrap from that point. And I think Kraus even went to his grave still not, uh, you know, really being on the best of terms with Phil Jackson. Like I said, like you said, mentioned, you know, it was a shock to me too because, you know, all we had ever been told was that, you know, uh, was that they told Phil he basically wasn't coming back. But, you know, that was found out to be untrue. If I was Phil Jackson, I wouldn't have wanted to come back either. Uh, if you tell me at the beginning of the season I can go 82-0 and 0 and I'm still not coming back, then, you know, regardless of what you tell me at the very end, then, you know, I've already decided mentally that I'm not coming back. You know, if he came back, I'm pretty sure Michael would have came back. I think Michael even mentioned it. You know, Dennis probably would have came back. You know, Scotty probably would have came back. You know, those guys probably would take a short-term deals, you know, for one last hurrah. But if I if I was Phil, like I said, I wouldn't have came back. You know, uh, Jerry Krause, you know, he got a lot of flack during this series, and he got portrayed, you know, kind of unfairly at some points. But also it was mentioned that Jerry Krause didn't do himself any favors. He didn't try to make any friends uh, during that process. So, you know, and I think one of the real villains of this is Jerry Ronsdorf, the owner. I want to say, you know, he offered Scottie Pippen that contract, you know, and he passed it down to Jerry Krause, and they made Jerry Krause seem like the bad guy. And Jerry, it was so sad that Jerry Ronsdorf was pretty bullish on contract negotiations. So, you know, they contributed to to the – contributed to, to how Scottie Pippen felt uh, in terms of, you know, his value with the franchise. So, you know, that played a lot into, you know, his disdain, you know, him wanting to leave. And, you know, Jerry Krause was talking about, you know, Players were and coaches were interchangeable, but that's simply untrue. You know, one thing Bill Belichick said is that, you know, great players can't overcome mediocre coaching. And you had the perfect player and the perfect coach. Uh, he didn't mention anything about, you know, GMs. You know, as long as you have the players and the coaches in part, I think you can win the championship. You know, championships are player and coach driven. Uh, that's pretty obvious. You know, think about LeBron James in Cleveland when he won the championship. Uh, the GM was pretty much kind of terrible. You know, LeBron really didn't like him, but, he, you know, saying so they got the right talent and they pretty much won in spite, you know, of the GM. So that lets you know right there that, you know, GMs, they matter, but they're not the end-all, be-all like Jerry Cross wants you to believe. And, of course, he didn't get his credit. You know, he constrict. I understand, you know, and I understand his plight. Uh, but like I said, Scotty did mention that, you know, he is probably the greatest GM of all time. You know, he constructed their roster, you know, perfectly, you know, in terms of what the triangle consists of, you know, the type of players that they need. So, you know, for that, you have to give him credit. But, you know, you also have to place some of the blame on him for, you know, helping orchestrating the breakup of the team too. Yeah, for sure, bro. I completely agree with you. Uh, and I think Krause was one of those people who, similar to MJ, uh, once he had a grudge with you, I mean, that was pretty much it because, like I said, uh, you know, you even had Jerry Reinsdorf even, you know, step in after they weren't with the Bull after Phil Jackson was no longer with the Bulls and, you know, tried to help Phil and Jerry uh, mend their relationship. But, you know, at that point, it was pretty much just a lost cause. Uh, so, you know, that split will always be one of the biggest what-ifs in history 
even though I will say that I personally highly doubt that they would have four-peated as champions that following season. You know, to each his own. You know, I think they, they could have because of the lockout shortened season. You know, it would have been less wear and tear in their bodies. They would have had more time to recover. You know, and the team chemistry would have still been there. So, I mean, I think they maybe could have won. I would It wouldn't have been a surprise if they did lost, but I thought they could have won. You know, I think it's a shame that they didn't get the opportunity to try. But, you know, winning six championships, you know, in two or three pieces is extraordinary in and of its own. So, you know, I think they have to be content with that. Well, yeah. But I think, well, for one, I don't think uh, Scottie Pippen was going to sign another team-friendly contract because uh, right after that, you know, he got the biggest payday of his career. Uh, Steve Kerr was due to get paid. I don't think he would have came back. Uh, you know, at some point, those guys have to put their personal finances and, you know, provide for their family over team accomplishments. And, you know, they had already sacrificed that for so long. Uh, so I think that that season uh, probably would have been the end of it regardless. And then, too, we saw in that 98 finals how bad of a matchup Carl Malone was for that team. And, you know, the following season, the Spurs won with Duncan and Robinson. So you can only imagine how bad of a matchup that would have been for the Bulls. That's true. That's true. I can't argue with that. And I think, you know, if I'm not mistaken, Michael Jordan mentioned that, you know, in terms of career straight basketball NBA earnings, I think Scottie Pippen did end up making more than he did in terms of, you know, straight NBA earnings, not off the court, but just strictly on the court. I think Scottie Pippen did end up making more money than Michael Jordan did because up until the last two last two or three years, Michael Jordan didn't have big contracts. I think his average salary was like three or four million up until that up until like ninety five, ninety six, if I'm not mistaken. So none of those yeah. guys so none of those guys at the time were really getting paid. And I think Steve Kerr ended up signing like a five year, eleven million dollar deal with San Antonio, which looking back it wasn't much at all. But at the time, you know, that was a nice size contract for somebody, you know, mm -hmm. with his skill set. And I don't know, I don't know the exact figures that Scotty got with, with uh you know what Scotty got on his next contract, but I believe it was five years, at least five year deal. So, you know. If I'm not mistaken, I believe it was like seventy two million total over the contract. Yeah, so you know that's a that's a big payday considering how old he was at the time. And going from making like a million a year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a big increase. But, man, you know, we're still on the basketball topic. And, matter of fact, we're, we're talking about a guy that was mentioned a lot in episodes 9 and 10 of The Last Dance. Uh, John Stockton, who's one of the best point guards in league history. Quentin, where does John Stockton rank in your all-time point guard conversation? Yeah, bro. So, you know, watching these last episodes, you know, uh, MJ and the Bulls, their last two finals opponents, uh, it was the Jazz, you know, twice in a row. Uh, and, you know, it really made me think about, you know, John Stockton is probably one of the all-time great players that, to me, doesn't just really get talked about enough. Uh, in my opinion, he's the second-best all-time point guard behind only Magic Johnson. And honestly, I think the only thing that's keeping him from that one spot is his lack of championships. Uh, because looking over his 19-year career, he couldn't get to the NBA Finals until he was, like, 34 years old. Like, even that season they went to the Finals, he was no longer even averaging double assists. Uh, but just looking at his career, you know, he had the accolades, 11-time All-NBA, 
10-time All-Star, 9-time Assist Champion. Uh, he got it done on defense, making the defensive team five times. He was the two-time steal leader. Um, and then, you know, looking at his on-the-court production, he shot 51% from the field, 38% from three, and 82% from the free throw line. Uh, and, you know, then on top of that, to add to his greatness, uh, John Stockton was an Iron Man. I mean, this guy played 19 years in the NBA. And if, of his 19 years, 12 of those, he started all 82 games of the season. Like, looking at how guys load management and whatnot these days, like, that's pretty remarkable in my opinion. Uh, and then, you know, looking at his assist record, that, that'll for sure never be broken uh, by anyone. Uh, and his steals record may not either because I think the second leading all-time steals leader is like 600 steals behind him. And I think that's Jason Kidd, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but, you know, even on top of that, too, he was a clutch player. Uh, in that series, we saw he hit the shot against the Rockets in Game 7 to send the Jazz to the finals. And like I mentioned, you know, they had always struggled to get through that breaking point. And because of him, you know, they were able to even get to the NBA Finals. Um, and then looking at the chemistry he had with Carl Malone, um, him and Carl Malone are easy, easily the deadliest pick-and-roll combination we've seen in NBA history. Uh, so, you know, in my opinion, I don't think he gets talked about enough, but when you look at what he did, he's the second-best point guard in history, NBA history. I agree with every single point you made, and after giving it some thought, I also have John Stockton ranked as my second-best point guard in NBA history. And, and the big thing that keeps him from being number one you mentioned is the lack of championships. You mentioned the accolades, you know, and I think what separates him from Stephen Curry, you know, I've heard people call Stephen Curry the second-greatest point guard of all time. And I think what separates him and John Stockton is, you know, his defense and uh, passing. You know, Steph Curry, uh, by all, by any no stretch of the imagination, is not a good defender. He, I believe he's far below average as a defender. And, you know, one thing for me that just, just really did it for me with Steph Curry was in the NBA Finals when he asked for a switch off of Fred Van Fleet. That right there, that did it for me. I lost so much res- I lost so much respect for that, man. You know, this the NBA. You asked for Fred Van Fleet isn't even the best point guard on his team, and you asked for a switch off of him. So, man, nah, you lose respect for me, you know, with that type of stuff. You know, you look at the numbers. You know, he's the quintessential point guard. You know, 13 points, you know, around three boards, and uh, almost 11 assists a game and, and two steals a game. You know, he's a 10-time All-Star, 11-time All-NBA selection, five-time All-Defense. He was a nine-time assist champ. And he's a two-time steals champ. You know, so this shows his versatility on both ends. You know, and by all accounts, he's a, he's a tough guy. You know, and like you said, he was an Iron Man. So, you know, you, you can't mistake Stephen Curry for an Iron Man, and I don't know if you would call him a tough guy either. So you know when you look at all those things, <laughs> when you look at all those things combined, man, I think that that vaults John Stockton in second. You know you can make the argument in terms of he doesn't have any championships, but you know think about it. You ran into Michael Jordan the last two times you were there. You know so you know pretty much when Michael Jordan made it to the championship game, nobody else was able to beat him. So you know you can't you can't knock John John Stockton for not being able to beat Michael Jordan. Nobody could once he got to the NBA championship. Yeah, no doubt, bro. Like like you just said, which was something I meant to bring up too. You can't judge him for not beating MJ, who's as we've recognized is easily a top two player of all time. Uh, but just looking at you know 
uh, his impact on the game. You know the tempo that him and him and the that Utah Jazz team played with, um, and you know how people always say MJ never went to Game Seven. Well, if he hadn't made that shot Game Six in '98, then they were you know very well about to take them to a Game Seven in that series. Uh, so, you know, like you said, just looking at his body of work, uh, and I don't know, you said Steph, but if I had to give a top five of uh point guards of all time i think i'd go magic johnson john stockton i think oscar robertson would be third for me then i go isaiah thomas and then i put stephen curry at fifth and the biggest knock for me was steph uh he's never had that it factor for me you know you can't you can't knock his talent uh how much he's transformed the way the nba is played today you know, everybody wants somebody who can shoot from 35-plus feet. I mean, look at Trey Young in Atlanta. Uh, you got Damian Lillard. Uh, but, you know, even in the NBA Finals and just consistently in big games, uh, he has a tendency to disappear when you need him most. Uh, so, like I said, he just doesn't have that it factor. Uh, but with everything I listed for John Stockton, uh, I don't think there's really any debating that he's the second best point guard all time. Because I know a bunch of people even say Isaiah Thomas, but uh, you have to take into account that he played on a pretty good uh, Pistons team. And I think if John Stockton had, you know, had that much talent outside of Carl Malone on the Jazz, uh, they probably could have got a few chips themselves. Oh, yeah, like I said, man, you, you get no argument from me. You know, Steph Curry, of course, is going to move up on that list, I believe, you know, with the accolades, you know, that are to come, if he can remain healthy. But for now, you know, I'm I'm pretty, you know, John Stockton's spot is pretty much solidified in terms of my all-time point guard rankings. No doubt, no doubt. Man, but let's move on to another topic. You know, uh, last week, Jim Trotter of NFL Network reported that the NFL was considering improving draft picks for teams that hired minority coaches, you know, and it could improve a third round pick by 16 spots for hiring a minority coach or a GM. Quinn, what are your thoughts on that? And, you know, and before I do that, I also, I have something that, you know, that was, that just, the NFL just updated the Rooney rule. And I think that's something you may want to know before you give your thoughts on it. So now the NFL will require teams to interview at least two external minority candidates for head coaching jobs. <laughs> and at least one minority for offense for a coordinated position. They must also interview one external minority for senior football operations and general manager jobs, and they must also include minorities and or female applicants for senior-level positions, including team president. So, Quinn, what are your thoughts, you know, on that on that incentive-based, you know, hiring thing for uh, coaches and GMs, you know, in the updated Rooney Rule? Wow, that's hilarious. I'm glad you pointed that out because I, I didn't realize that. Uh, but before I get started, I just want to be known out of the 30 NFL teams, there are only three black head coaches. Uh, you got Flores, Brian Flores with the Dolphins, Anthony Lynn with the Chargers, and of course, we all know Mike Tomlin with the Steelers. Uh, and then the fourth minority is Ron Rivera, who's Puerto Rican. Uh, and then outside of those same 30 NFL teams, there are only two. African-American general managers. Uh, you have Andrew Berry, who's with the Cleveland Browns. 
and Chris Greer, who's also with Flores down in Miami. Uh, but another statistic, I don't know if you knew this or not, but you know the NFL just celebrated their 100-year history. Don't you know there have only uh, ever been 18 minority head coaches? Ain't that crazy? That's very crazy. That's actually quite ridiculous. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. But, man, like, this – first off, to address the Rooney rule, that rule has never changed anything to begin with. Uh, I think that dates back to – was it Art Rooney with the Patriots? Um, some hiring process. Uh, I think, you know, they didn't really interview any minority candidates. Uh, so, after that, the NFL put the Rooney rule in place to where it was originally only one minority uh, candidate that had to be interviewed. But as you just mentioned, it's now been updated to two, which, you know, that's a joke. Uh, but in my opinion, this is really just a slap in the face uh, to, you know, minority uh, coaches and GMs and, you know, aspiring coaches and GMs because it's almost like you're being hired for incentive uh, as opposed to, you know, your merit and what actually qualifies you for the position. Uh, it's almost like a token hire, you know. Uh, you know how there's always that token um, black or minority person in the room. Uh, this is almost like a token hire in the NFL organization, you know, just to essentially improve draft capital. Uh, I think Roger Goodell... You know, he's made a bunch of questionable decisions in his time as the commissioner. Uh, but I think he has the right intentions. I just think he's going about it the wrong way. For one, this is a rule that or an incentive that you have owners voting on. Mind you, all 30 NFL owners are white men. Uh, this idea wasn't even run by NFL coaches, specifically uh, the minority NFL coaches. Uh, and then even if it does get passed, you have to take into account the coaches will always feel undermined, you know, in the back of their head. It's always going to be like, you know, why was I really hired? It's almost like the, you know, you have the people who say I'm not racist, but such and such. This is kind of almost that situation. Like no one just wants to be given a job or a position, you know. You always want to feel that satisfaction that you earned it. And, you know, putting this incentive in place, you know, it takes away all of that uh, from that job position. Uh, and I think if you do that, you're putting the coaches and GMs in a position to, you know, they won't really have free reigns from day one if they're being hired just for, you know, draft stock. And then looking at it on the larger scope, why would an owner – you know, want to interview someone just for improved draft stock. Like you said, it's only moving up like 16 or six spots, you know, something like that in the mid, third, fourth, fifth rounds. Like that's, you know, improvement, but that's not just like a monumental change. So to me, I think they're going to have to go to, back to the drawing board and, uh, you know, really try to assess what they're going to do to address the problem. I want to give Roger Goodell, you know, well, first of all, uh, so the Art Rooney, Art Rooney was a part of the Pittsburgh Steelers organization. Uh, I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
But first, I want to give Roger Goodell some credit. I think his intentions are good, but, you know, the idea itself is uh, terrible. And I think it'll actually hurt minority coaches. You know, they will face the the knock that you you only got hired because you're black. And I think that that would be, you know, I don't think nobody want to be hired under those circumstances. And uh, and the original plan, so this is the original. For those who don't know what the Rooney Rule was designed to do, it was implemented to have more minority coaches and senior football and but more minority people in coaching positions and senior football operation positions. And it was established back in 2003. And there are only four minority coaches now. And according to men, there was only there's only one minority GM. So that, that goes to tell you 17 years and it's much had there's nothing virtually has changed. So it lets you know the effectiveness of the Rooney rule. But, you know, this is the original plan. So the original plan is that teams will move up six spots in the third round for hiring a minority head coach or 10 spots in the third round round for hiring a person of color as its general manager. It will also, if a team hires a minority coach or GM, it could jump 16 spots. And it says the team will get bonuses for keeping minorities in those positions. I don't think you should be rewarding NFL teams for doing their job. You know, some of the best candidates are black. I mean, it's, it just is what it is. And there are minorities. Those are some of the best candidates. You know, minorities can coach too. You know, if you want to feel the best team possible, have the best coaching staff, you shouldn't be looking at color. But, you know, that's unfortunately that's how things are. I think the problem, the big problem for me is the lack of black ownership. I think that's one of the solutions to this problem. You know, you have, you know, I I don't want to call anyone racist, but you have 30 white owners. And, you know, you have very few people, minority people in positions of power. So, you know, I think that kind of that kind of gives you, you know, what you need to tell you what you need to know about, you know, the hiring process. You know, you got guys like Eric Bieniemy, you know, who should definitely be a head coach, fielded one of the best – the last few years has fielded one of the best offenses in league history. And Byron Leftwich, you know, for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you know, had Jameis Winston uh, playing at a high level, you know, despite the interception. So, you know, he should be looked at for a head coaching job. So, you know, you have all these qualified black, you know, minority coaches, you know, and there's not many positions that have been filled. You have guys like special team coaches – like Joe Judge, who got a head coaching job, I think that's utterly ridiculous. I feel like that's you should awful. have to. I feel like you should have to at least be a coordinator first before you can be a head coach. I think that just comes with the game. I don't. I've never seen a special teams coach become a head coach except for John Harbaugh. That's, I think that's the only one outside of him and Joe Judge. I don't know anymore. But we, you know, we've seen what kind of co- coach that you know John Harbaugh turned out to be. So you know, that was an excellent decision. But we don't know what Joe Judge is going to be, and I, I know it just bothers me in a league that's seventy percent black. You know the the amount of black representation or minority representation that you know that the NFL has. And like I said, you know, Roger Goodell, I applaud Roger Goodell for you know recognizing the problem and trying to implement a plan. But I think he, like you said, he needs to go back to the drawing board because you know this is a terrible idea. And I do want to let you know that they did not they shot down the idea. So you know, just letting you know that didn't go through. Yeah, and I think the issue, too, was as opposed to, you know, trying to get to what the actual root of the issue is and addressing it from there, you know, they just really just tried to gloss over it, you know, like, here, you know, take this cookie, you know, whatever, like that, um, which I think was the wrong approach to begin with, like I said. Uh, so, you know, you know, happily, like you said, this won't go through, which I think, I don't think it was proposed. I think it might have been leaked, but, you know, it was still in the works to happen. Uh, But like I said, that was just an awful idea to begin with. 
the NFL is going to have to, you know, address the issue with the lack of minority uh, candidates in these higher executive positions. Uh, you know, hopefully this doesn't set us back even farther with the fact that this has come out. Uh, so hopefully the NFL can take the right steps in towards uh, addressing that. I just can't get over the fact that he had to provide new incentives for them to consider, you know, minority candidates. I, I, that doesn't sit well with me at all. And he, like I said, I really don't know what you could do, you know, at this point to to have more minority people in positions of power in, in the NFL. Like, I, I generally don't know. I mean, as long as you have 30 white owners, you know, I don't think much is going to change, you know, being completely honest. No, I completely agree with you, like, the fact that this even had to be offered with them should just tell you, you know, the mindsets and the approaches that these owners and, you know, executives are taking when they are going through the hiring process. And, you know, clearly we're seeing the result of it. I mean, we already clearly know what's happening. But, you know, with with proposals like this coming out, you know, it's really just confirming, you know, what we already know. Yeah, man, like I said, you know, that doesn't sit well with me at all. You know, you know, I'll be interested, you know, I'll, I'm interested in seeing, you know, what Roger Goodell and the NFL is going to do going forward. Yeah, no doubt, man. But, man, let's stick with the NFL. Uh, last Thursday, you know, we, we heard some terrible news that cornerback DeAndre Baker and quarterback Dunbar, Quinn Dunbar, uh, was charged with four counts uh, last Thursday of armed robbery and aggravated assault with a firearm. Uh, they turned themselves in Saturday. Uh, Quinn, what are your thoughts on this? Man, I originally saw this notification, and I was like, seriously? You know, like, it's not like these guys were, you know, just complete, you know, unknown scrubs. I mean, DeAndre Baker was a first-round pick out of Georgia last year. First team All American. Then you had Quinn Dunbar. You know he came on kind of late. Uh, he was he was originally an undrafted receiver out of Florida, uh, but his rookie year he was converted to corner. But you know he had kind of started coming into his own this year. You know prior to suffering some uh, injuries. Uh, but you have a guy and DeAndre Baker who was you know on a ten million dollar rookie contract. And then you have a guy in Quentin Dunbar who was set to make $3 million this year after he'd been traded, you know, to the Seahawks from Washington. But, like, when I first read this, it literally sounded like a GTA mission. Like, you know, you heard that they lost, which, of course, this is all allegedly right now. They haven't been to court yet. Uh, but, you know, they lost money two days prior gambling in the card game. They came back, mind you, this same day that they came back, just earlier that day, Quinn Dunbar had his introductory press conference with the Seahawks and was just talking about, you know, he was just excited to be there. He was, you know, grateful that an organization had, you know, put faith in him as a player and as a person, which made this even more crazy. Uh but allegedly, you know, later that night, they flipped the table at a card game. Uh, they proceeded to take 12K in cash, 60K in jewelry. And then it was alleged that DeAndre Baker 
directed a guy in a red mask who was uh, allegedly uh, Quentin Dunbar to shoot someone who had walked in the house. Um, and then, on top of it all, how do you commit a robbery and you're leaving in a Mercedes Benz, a BMW, and a Lamborghini? Like, I, I really don't get it. But, uh, you know, this just shows, you know, some players, they just, you know, never really uh, embrace or, you know, have a smooth transition from college to the professional ranks. Uh, and I think if anything, you know, it just teaches you a life lesson to choose your battles wisely. Uh, you can't expect to go to battle if, you know, you can't take losses well. Because, you know, like I said, they had lost money gambling, which I think they said it was somewhere like seventy, eighty thousand $80,000 that they had lost. Uh, and, you know, they came back, you know, seeking revenge. You know, some people are just always taught or raised with that survival mentality. Uh, and, you know, sometimes it never leaves even after, you know, players leave those environments and they uh, become professionals and, you know, are making millions of dollars. Uh, and, you know, it just shows that, you know, they really have to work towards changing their mentality when they become pro athletes because you're out here representing, you know, billion-dollar franchises and organizations, you know, that are cutting your check. Uh so I think, you know, ultimately it came down to respect. And, you know, they were willing to take whatever measure it took to make sure that those guys respected them. And, you know, they just weren't going to let them take their money. Uh, but unfortunately, you know, it may compromise their future. And I think it's a really sad situation. The first thing I thought when I saw that report was, you know, how stupid could you be? And, you know, everything, you know, so far has been alleged. But, you know, those are some serious allegations to be making. You know, armed robbery, aggravated assault with a firearm. Those are some serious charges. And I'm thinking, why would you even put yourself in that position? You're both making millions of dollars a year. Why would you go, and, you know, and go to an illegal dice game is what, I, you know, is what I've read. So why would you go gamble that type of money at those games knowing that, you know, playing dice is a, is a, is a gamble. Uh, you could lose a lot of money very quick, you know, playing dice. So I don't know why you would even put yourself in that kind of position. I think it goes to show, you know, the level of importance, you know, that comes with, you know, having the right people around you, you know, making sure you stay out of trouble and being responsible, you know, as a man. You know, as a man, I want to put myself in that type of position. I'm making millions of dollars. Why would I go gamble, you know, at a, at a risky dice game? That's, I think that's just stupid. I think it's no other way to put it, you know, and hopefully – they didn't do that, you know, for the for their sake, you know, for the sake of the family, you know, the sake of the organizations that signed them. But you no, know, I, I don't understand. I, I just truly don't understand. Yeah, and you know, specifically for athletes, you know, especially to be a professional, you know, you put all this time, all these years, all these early mornings, late nights, you know, grinding, working out you know, really sacrificing and committing yourself to the sport and to just, you know, think that you could just ruin it in a matter of minutes or seconds, like just off of one stupid decision. Like, it's just crazy to me. You know, and I, you mentioned, you know, the environment that you grew up in, but I don't, I don't feel like that should be an excuse at all. 
you know, everybody don't grow up in the best environment. You got to make the best of your situation. And you're a professional athlete, like, you know, that comes with it. You know, how are you going to drive off in a Mercedes and a Lamborghini? Like, how and, – and not get caught. The average person doesn't have a Mercedes or a Lamborghini, so how do you think you were going to get away with that? <laughs> I, That's I just, why I said it's uh, like a GTA mission. <laughs> I don't know, but and it, I, for me, and you know, and as a – as a black man myself, bro, it just it's like, come on, bro. Like this the cars are already stacked against us as black men. You know, we hunt it every day we step outside and you go and do something stupid to put an even bigger target on our backs. I, I just don't understand. Yeah, and you know, going back to what you said, you know, I wasn't really attributing it to their environments because you know, we've seen I mean, look at LeBron James and the environment he came from, but I was more so attributing it, like I said, to their mentalities. And, you know, once you're given and it, like a certain mentality is ingrained in you, you know, you can't just change that overnight. Uh, and just having that, you know, mentality of, you know, if somebody gets you, you got to get them back. Or just like I said, ultimately, you know, just fighting for survival. Uh, I think that's something that those young men, you know, they had. And, you know, it easily came out in the situation uh, as severe as this one. Yeah, you know, it upset me seeing the report. You know, I hope, you know, it's all a big lie. But, you know, from what it's looking like, uh, it looks like they both pleaded not guilty. And they both, you know, they both they paid their bail. They're out on bond. So, you know, we'll see. We'll closely monitor that situation going forward. But, you know, moving on to our last topic of the day. Last week, Pro Football Focus released their top 101 players of the decade. Quinn, what are your takeaways from their list? Uh, Well, for one, I want it to be known anytime Pro Football Focus does rankings, the grades are okay, but rankings, I don't put much weight in because, you know, they pretty much do those rankings based strictly off their grades. And, you know, those are just a bunch of computer nerds typing in a bunch of numbers. They don't hardly know anything about football. Um, but the first thing that stood out to me at the top of the list, uh, Aaron Donald was the number two player of the decade and, you know, number one defensive player. Uh, but, I mean, my argument, I think J.J. Watt was the best play defensive player of the decade. Uh, comparing him and Aaron Donald, J.J. Watt was a five-time All-Pro. Uh, he was a six-time Pro Bowler. He also won Defensive Player of the Year three times, like three times. That's unheard of. But then Aaron Donald, you know, he had – he was also a five-time All-Pro. He had um, five Pro Bowls of his own. And, I mean, he's also no slouch either. He has two Defensive Player of the Years. Uh, but for me, where it really uh, separates – you look at Watt, he had two 20-sack seasons where Donald only had one, and I don't think he's had more than 15 or 12 even outside of that one season. Then you have J.J. Watt, who on three different occasions had at least 29 tackles for loss. Aaron Donald only did that once. Then J.J. Watt was a tackling machine, he topped 75 tackles on four different occasions. Aaron Donald's career high is 69. Uh, 
And then we know J.J. Watt was prominent for, you know, sticking his hand up and knocking passes down. He had two seasons where he had double-digit pass deflections. Like, that's crazy. And Aaron Donald, who's right in the middle of the D-line, only had five once. And even looking at both of their careers, uh, looking at Aaron Donald's entire career, and Watt, since Donald has been in the league from 2014 to 2019, they both have the same amount of forced fumbles. But thing is, J.J. Watt has only played three full seasons out of those six. Uh, to me, uh, with no disrespect to Aaron Donald, you know, he's clearly a dominant player. But the years 2012 through 2015 by J.J. Watt will never be seen again. And, you know, Injuries have derailed his career, and I think that's caused people to forget, you know, just how great he was. You know, before he battled injuries, there was talk that he was, you know, a better defensive player than Lawrence Taylor. And, you know, clearly he was making the case for that, and he had the numbers and the hardware to back it up. Um, and I think my other uh, the something that stood out to me, Russell Wilson being ranked 33rd, uh, primarily behind Matt Ryan was my biggest problem. But in my opinion, Russell Wilson was a top 20 player of this decade. Uh, you know, just looking at what he's done before Russell Wilson, you know, Seattle wasn't really known for anything other than, you know, Marshawn Lynch's beast mode run. Uh, they always had the 12th man. They have, you know, some of the better uniforms for me in the NFL. Uh, but even before he arrived, you know, Pete Carroll had went had back to back seven and nine seasons, and you know, some Russell Wilson has that it factor, where you know he just wins, and you know he just constantly does it. You know, every year, you know, people seem to count out the Seahawks, but at the end of the year, you know, they're right there with the top teams at the end of the season in the NFL. And looking at um, what Russell Wilson's done. The only team that has more wins than him in his time in the NFL is the New England Patriots. And then even comparing him to another Hall of Fame quarterback this decade, Drew Brees, Russell Wilson has nine playoff wins. Drew Brees only has four. Russell Wilson has zero losing seasons. Mind you, he's had some of the worst offensive lines in the NFL uh, outside of, you know, maybe Golden Tate. Uh, DK Metcalf this season, you know, he hasn't just truly really had a bona fide number one receiver to throw to. Uh, but, you know, he just not day in and day out. He's a playmaker. You can count on him for his leadership. He's clutch. He's honestly really talented at throwing the ball, whether you believe it or not. Um, and I mean, even comparing him to Tom Brady, he's the only quarterback that has a higher win percentage than Russell Wilson. Russell Wilson has been 95 and 47 in his time in the NFL. And I think it's highly disrespectful that they chose to put Matt Ryan ahead of Russell Wilson. I'm pretty sure if you ask the Falcons, would they take Matt Ryan or Russell Wilson? In a heartbeat, they say Russell Wilson. Man, I, I agree with all the points that you just made. Uh, 
you know, but the, some of the things that I took away from that, of course, you know, Tom Brady was going to be ranked number one. You know, I have no argument with that. You know, J.J. Watt undoubtedly should be ranked higher than Aaron Donald. You know, I think that's one of the, the things I didn't like about the list. Uh, but my first big issue with the list is ranking Drew Brees over Aaron Rodgers. That's my first big issue. Uh, if you look at since 2010, first of all, Aaron Rodgers has a Super Bowl uh, since 2010. You know, Drew Brees won his in 2009 during the 2009 season. Uh, Drew Brees has four losing seasons during that time. Aaron Rodgers has two. One, no, excuse me. Aaron Rodgers only has only has only has one, and that was back in 2018. You know, of course, Drew Brees. You know, passes the ball a lot. You know, his numbers are going to be better. Uh, Aaron Rodgers has missed some time, but you know, the Super Bowl and the MVP. You know, is what sets them apart this decade for me. Uh, Drew Brees is still yet to get an MVP, even playing in Sean Payton's. You know. Predominantly offensive system. I think I'm pretty sure you know that system is extremely quarterback friendly with the amount of short passes, you know, the intermediate routes and the creativity. So you know, in the amount, in the amount of times that they throw the ball, so that lends itself to you know his statistics being better than Aaron Rodgers. But I think there's no way that you could put Drew Brees over Aaron Rodgers, especially in this in this decade before Pat Mahomes came along. That's what Aaron Rodgers was, uh, a guy with freakish arm talent and it was extremely mobile, you know, and can make you know, big plays at the drop of a hat. You know, we've seen this, his playoff Hail Marys and the throws he's made in the playoffs. So I don't think there's no way I would have ranked Drew Brees over Aaron Rodgers in terms of this decade. Now, as a career, you know, that argument can be made, you know, and I wouldn't I wouldn't scoff at that argument. But in terms of just, you know, this decade, I think that's completely ridiculous. You know, uh, they had Richard Sherman ranked as the highest court defensive back. Uh, I think they got that right. Von Miller was the highest rated pass rusher. I think they got that right. right? You know, Julio was rated as the highest receiver. They got that right. And they, they had Luke Keekley ranked as the best linebacker. You know, there can be some argument made between him and Bobby Wagner, but I have Luke Keekley, uh, who re just recently retired, unfortunately. And, you know, there was 47 defensive players in that top 101 list. So that goes to show you, you know, that defensive players still are making an impact in this, uh, in this continuously offensive league. They're still finding a way to make an impact. And, you know, and the one thing I thought that was worth worthwhile mentioning was that Kevin Byard – and Jalen Ramsey were included on this list, two guys that were both drafted in 2016. And I think that's that says a lot about those guys, considering they've only played, you know, this will be their, their fifth season. And they've already, you know, they're already considered some of the best players of the of the last 10 years. You know, we know what Kevin Byard has done, you know, during his time with Tennessee. He already, he already has over 300 tackles, you know, has over 37 pass deflections, and he has – uh, already 17 interceptions. Uh, the last three years, he's had 17 interceptions in his last three seasons. You know, that's that's a lot considering playing at the safety position. Jalen Ramsey only has 10 uh, for that matter. So, you know, including both of those guys, you know, was something I didn't expect to see, but it speaks to their greatness. And I think one, one big omission was Cam Chancellor. Uh, we all know who Cam Chancellor is. You know, he was the heart and soul of that Seattle Seahawks defense, you know, during their championship run. You know, Richard Sherman said it himself, he said, Cam Chancellor can stand over grass and kill grass. Uh, <laughs> I don't know about you, but I enjoyed, I enjoyed watching him. He was an intimidator, you know, and he also made plays on the ball, and that's evidenced by his 12 interceptions and over 40 pass deflections. You know, the guy was six foot three, 230 pounds, and could cover, you know, I seen him cover Wes Walker in the slot during the Super Bowl. You know, I've seen him come down and, you know, kill offensive linemen. You know, I've seen him pick people up when they make tackles, you know. We've seen him take – 
Vernon Davis's head off time and time again. So, you know, I think not, not, having, talk about that. <laughs> not, not having Cam Chancellor on their list is completely ridiculous, in my opinion. Like, he's one of the better defensive players of this generation. I don't know how you include any safeties list and not have, you know, Cam Chancellor on there, but you have Earl Thomas. You know, there is no Legion of Boom without Cam Chancellor. You know, you'd have Richard Sherman and Earl Thomas, but Cam Chancellor completed that back end. I think they might have had the back the best, you know, defensive backfield of this generation. Uh, you know, and you have to consider, you know, the 2015 Denver Broncos as well. But I think those two, you know, those two defensive backfield were the best of this generation. And how can you not include one of the, you know, the, the founders and the orchestrators of the Legion of Boom, Cam Chess? I think that was, that was stupid. And like you mentioned, you know, when you first started, you know, when you see a list for pro football focus, you know, you kind of you tend to ignore it because, like you said, it's a lot of analytics. And, you know, I don't think analytics really have a place in football. I, I haven't seen analytics win a championship in the NBA or the NFL, for that matter. So, you know, that lets you know how much I think about analytics. And, you know, sometimes I agree with the grades and sometimes I don't. Sometimes I think the grades are completely ridiculous. But, you know, no Cam Chancellor was the biggest thing for me. You know what I'm saying? And you also mentioned, you know, Matt Ryan being ranked over Russell Wilson. I think that was – just stupid to keep it plain. You know, I don't think nobody on planet Earth would take <laughs> Matt, Matt Ryan over Russell Wilson. I'm sure they might have one good season. <laughs> I'm pretty sure you can. I'm pretty sure you can ask Falcons fans. You know about you know who would they rather have? And I'm pretty sure they would pick Russell Wilson. If not, they don't deserve to watch the game of football. Let's just keep it honest here. You know, Russell Wilson has a great arm. Actually, you know, I agree with you on that point. You know, that's, his arm is actually underrated. And the amount of time he has to run, he doesn't get hit a lot. You know, he, you know, you saw the rushing, you've seen the rush yard numbers, and he's just a playmaker. You know, he may not throw for five thousand yards. That's not, that's not the system that they run in Seattle. But he is, a, he's a bona fide playmaker. He's a superstar, and he's one of the best quarterbacks the game has to offer. I think he is the second best quarterback in the league behind Pat Mahomes. So I think you know him being ranked under, you know, under Matt Ryan was just, oh, that was completely egregious. Yeah, man. Trust me, as a 49ers fan, I know just as well as anybody, you know, just how great both of those players, uh, Russell Wilson and Cam Chancellor, both were uh, and still is. Uh, But, you know, I completely agree about, you know, Cam Chancellor being left off. I mean, he literally was the boom of the Legion of Boom, to be honest. Like, in my opinion, he's probably a top four. He should have been top 40. Uh, probably right around in that range of, you know, players from this decade. Uh, I think, you know, they probably did take into account the fact that he retired early, but you still can't question his impact and, you know, just how lethal he was on the field. I mean, that guy used to just knock people's heads off. Like you said, uh, that one hit against uh, Vernon Davis in the NFC Championship, I don't know how Vernon Davis even got up and walked after that. Like, it was crazy, the hits he used to put on people. Like, he was literally like a Ray Lewis playing safety. I I definitely enjoy watching Cam Chancellor. I tuned in, you know, a lot of times just because of Cam Chancellor. I've watched his highlight tapes I don't know how many times. And he was just – that man was just an intimidator. Like, I've never seen, you know, a grown man – straight up bully other grown men on the field like that. And I think it was something to behold. You know, unfortunately, his career got cut short because of, you know, of a neck injury. You know, it'll be interesting to see, you know, where would he still be on the Seattle Seahawks roster? You know, what level will he still be playing at right now? You know, Errol Thomas, you know, 
still playing at a high level. Richard Sherman still playing at a high level. So I, I don't, I don't doubt that Cam Chancellor could have put, continued to play at a high level even now. Yeah, for sure, for sure, bro. Well, I think we, you know, pretty much agreed on everything on that. I do have to get your opinion though. Who you got, JJ Watt or Aaron Donald? I'm gonna go with JJ Watt because of, you know that three year run that you mentioned. I think that's one of the greatest runs we've ever seen. I think that's the greatest one we probably ever will see from a defensive player. He has three defensive player of the year awards, but I think you know those last these last few years where he's been injured a lot. I think that's created you know a bit of recency bias you know towards Aaron Donald. You know because Aaron Donald has been dominant as of late. But I think one thing you have to consider, you know, when you're talking about the sack numbers is, you know, how they're both utilized. Because, you know, J.J. Watt plays defensive end in the 3-4. And, uh, you know, Aaron Donald plays the defensive tackle position. So, you know, more times than not, people that line up at defensive end usually end up with more sacks than somebody who plays defensive tackle, too. And you have to consider that, you know, J.J. Watt also had Jadavian Clowney for a short period of time who proved to be a game record. Not the game record that, you know, everybody thought he was going to be coming out of, you know, college in terms of sack numbers, but he was, you know, consistently in the backfield in terms of tackles for a loss. So he – and he also had Whitney Merciless. So he had two running mates, you know, to take off some pressure, you know. But Aaron Donald, you know, what other pass rushers have they had, you know, outside of Aaron Donald consistently? He's still been able to put up, you know, some great numbers from the defensive tackle position. But – I will ultimately go with J.J. Watt there, you know, just because of that run he had. I will say, you know, that 2012 to 2015 run, I think Jadavian Clowney wasn't drafted until, like, 2015, 2016. So, I mean, he was doing that before he showed up. Now, that was when J.J. Watt started getting injured. Now, him and Jadavian Clowney together and healthy, that would have been scary. Uh, but I mean, even going back to what you said about Aaron Donald, uh, you know, they actually did play him a little bit more at uh three, four defensive end this year. Uh, and you know, he ended up with 12.5 sacks. Uh, so, I mean, you know, he was pretty much playing the same position JJ Watt played. Like I said, I think JJ Watt, you know, just his peak. Well, I'll say Aaron Donald's peak is probably higher. But J.J. Watt had the peak as long as a little bit of the longevity. Because, like, like I said, that four years in a row will probably never be duplicated again. That's true. And I think one thing, you know, people forget to mention about Aaron Donald. Aaron Donald isn't, you know, a very big guy when you consider, you know, the normal defensive tackle or defensive end. I think he's about six feet, what, 290 pounds, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. So he he's able to you know wreck and you know destroy game plans. You know at two hundred ninety pounds, you know JJ Watt is what six four, maybe two hundred ninety nine pounds, something like that, if I'm not mistaken. So you know he's a he's a bigger guy, but you know both of those guys were you know are tremendous defensive players, and I think they're some of the best that this that this generation has had to offer. And frankly, I think they'll go down to some of the best defensive players that the game has ever seen. Yeah, for sure, bro. I completely agree with you. Because I will say, I've never seen a defensive lineman as athletic as Aaron Donald. Like, that dude is ridiculous. Like, we be 49ers, we be having the double and triple team, dude. (laughs) Well, man, Quinn, is is there anything else you want to add? Man, I think that's about all we got. All right, well, that's all we have for y'all today. We appreciate y'all for rocking with us and tuning in to episode 11. 
of the first and foremost podcast. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, you know, Facebook, Instagram, you know, add us. Let us know if you got any, you know, any topic suggestions, you know, any, you know, any criticisms, anything you think we should work on, add to our show. And uh, thank you once again. I'm Jimmy Covington. And I am the one and only Quentin Douglas. Thank you all again. All right. We out. Thank you all.